Sunday Morning Matinee is brought to you in partnership with The Christian Century, a magazine for progressive church leaders. Hey folks, welcome to Sunday Morning Matinee, where we talk movies and pop culture with an eye for pastors, preachers, and Sunday school teachers. And today, after a long break, we are back, and we are going to talk today about The Truffle Shuffle, Troy's Bucket, and a movie that Adam has described as Richard Donner's 1985 masterpiece, (laughs) Goonies. My name is Matt, and I'm the pastor at University Presbyterian Church in Austin, Texas. And I'm Adam, and I'm the minister at Overbrook Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And in our first segment today, Justification by Faith, we're going to talk about how Goonies helps us think about life in the church and in the world. And In our second segment, Preaching to the Choir, we're going to discuss how Goonies might help us understand the lectionary passages for October 31st, which happens to also be the 31st Sunday after Pentecost, year B. And in our third segment, Postludes, we'll take a second to share another little preacher thought from each of us on something else that we're reading or watching or following. But before we get too far down the road, we want to introduce our guest, Amy Frickholm. Amy is an editor at The Christian Century, a longtime friend of the show, and the author of the recent book, Wild Woman, A Footnote, The Desert and My Quest for an Elusive Saint, which is about her quest for the ancient St. Mary of Egypt. Hence, today, we're talking about the best time that Corey Feldman ever starred in an Indiana Jones movie, <laughs> a great quest movie of the 80s, Goonies. Amy, thanks so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. It is a little bit weird to try to put together Mary of Egypt and the Goonies. That's a pretty, that's a pretty brilliant move and we'll see what we can do with it. Um, I'll just say a, a little bit about Mary of Egypt who most, I think most listeners won't have ever heard of. She is a desert saint, a hermit um, who, whose story was told in the seventh century and possibly her own life was in the fifth or fourth, fifth century, somewhere around there. Um, and she was a, a prostitute who, um, traveled from Alexandria to Jerusalem on a, a boat that was um, for pilgrims. And she sold sex to pilgrims to make the trip. And then she got to Jerusalem and she um, had a life-changing encounter with Mary, the mother of God. And so after that encounter, she went into the desert and she lived the rest of her life there. And I basically took the seventh century text that was written by uh, the patriarch of Jerusalem and turned it into a map. And then I followed Mary of Egypt using this map uh, from upper Egypt to uh, the Jordanian wilderness. And that's what, that's what my book is about. And that's kind of what has obsessed me for the last several years is how to understand the relationship between history and, uh, and, these literary texts that we've inherited and then also how to make sense of these inner and outer quests that we we seem to all go on modern day chester copperpot amy you know (laughs) chester copperpot that's right got lost in the desert rotting out there somewhere So, I mean, it makes sense to me that we would pick up this this genre of movie, this treasure map genre of movie. Uh, Goonies feels very specifically like a a particular kind of an 80s movie genre to me, which 
I'll sort of casually describe as kids get in unsupervised adventures, uh, which is like Stand By Me or Ferris Bueller or even like Adventures in Babysitting. But Goonies has to be the apotheosis of it, which is directed by the late Richard Donner with producer Steven Spielberg's touch all over it. The story of a group of kids living on the Oregon coast who discover clues about hidden pirate treasure lurking in one of their attics. And they also embark on this like Indiana Jones-esque adventure through their own town in search of the fortune that will stave off the developers trying to foreclose on their homes. I'm pretty sure we all watched this movie with big nostalgia goggles on. For sure, it was a landmark of my childhood, though I will admit in preparation for the show, looking through the show notes, I think Adam's nostalgia goggles may be working better than mine. <laughs> but Amy, I'm, I'm so I'm more curious for your thoughts. As you've said, you, you know something about quests and treasure maps and journeying through to where X might mark a spot. This feels like a movie about all those things. As you rewatched it, did you find any buried treasure? Well, in the rough outlines, I'll say I wasn't like a, it, I found that the movie was a little bit like overstimulating. I think my my day to day life doesn't have as much action in it. And so <laughs> that's the perfect it, that's the perfect word for this movie. It is overstimulating, so even though I love like, it. Yeah, every oh, character in this movie speaks at a volume of ten all the time <laughs> simultaneously. I admit that at one point I just put it on mute and just sort of watched everyone running around because like, I just couldn't handle the volume um so yeah I mean I did but I did love that moment in the attic when the kids are when they find the map right and then they decide to try to turn it into an actual uh something that they could actually use or follow I mean that that really did remind me very much of myself like hey could I turn this into a, a map that I could follow does any of this represent reality and I love that moment when the kids sort of do the same thing and are inspired to take what they have and turn it into a quest. And, you know, and I loved also the fact that it's completely marked by failure. The kids never actually, very rarely and usually by accident, do they do the right thing or do they make the right move? They're not supremely clever. There's a lot of, there's just a lot of failure in the movie. And I really mm -hmm. like that too, because I think that's just a crucial part of any quest is just not finding things and not getting it right and then stumbling so, by accident. Yeah, so Amy, I mean, <clears throat> I think that like watching, I've seen this movie many, many times. And so uh, watching that moment in the attic where there's for some reason a treasure map, there are like 16th century artifacts <laughs> like hanging out in the attic. Why um, are these things in that attic, Adam? Uh, well, I'm going to hold you personally responsible for the well, creative because, decisions in this movie. Because so. Mikey and Brand's dad, okay, so I know the plot. Um, like it's like it's my own life. Mikey and Brand's dad is the head of the historical the historical society for Astoria, and so apparently the historical society doesn't have enough storage, and so it's some of it is in their attic. But here's my question, um, Amy: Like when you, where were you when you found the story of Mary of Egypt, and? what I like about this movie and what, what all quest movies do have is there's, there's some sort of driving force that presses people into the quest. In Goonies, it's the foreclosure of the Goondocks, which is this like neighborhood that's going to be developed into a country club and a golf course or something like that. 
Um, but there's always a driving force that presses people out of their comfort zone onto a journey, onto a path. So where did you find Mary of Egypt and how did, why did it compel you to go to the Jordanian wilderness? Yeah, that's a, uh, it's a great question. I found her in, I mean, it, it's a much less, I think, exciting story in a way, but I found her in the library at UC Boulder and I was, it, I was not on a quest. I was not looking for adventure. I was not particularly interested in anything, in any new information of any kind, but uh, I was working on footnotes for my first book. And as I went through and it was just really tedious labor of just trying to make sure that the page number oh, matched the, the actual page number. Yeah. I had this, I had this terrible fear that if someone read my book and noticed I had the wrong page number in a footnote, they wouldn't give me a job. And I that's really not, you know, really accurate to reality. But I um I still was doing this, this really tedious work. And I got really tired and really hungry. And I just, I don't, I really can't tell you how it happened, but I was just in a random stack somewhere in the library and this book in my imagination, it flew off the shelf and landed in my, in my hands. And it wasn't anything I was particularly interested in. I didn't know it was called 10 Holy Women of Byzantium. And I didn't really have the sense that I was interested in holy women or in Byzantium. So I really <laughs> didn't know what the book was doing in my hands, but I just randomly opened it up and I got to the story of Mary of Egypt and I paged through the first like four or five pages as if it wasn't interesting at all. Like I, as if I was looking for something. And then suddenly I was absorbed in the story of Mary of Egypt and the story just took me. It just carried me off. And I went to a coffee shop and got some lunch and sat down and wrote out the story of Mary of Egypt by hand, eliminating all the words that I thought were unnecessary. And it was most of the words. So at the end of that little adventure, which I don't know even what compelled it, I had the bones of the story of Mary of Egypt. And that was what compelled me for the next, I don't know, 15 years of various attempts to understand why that story had just pulled me by the nose and, and taken hold. Mm. So unsatisfying answer, I suppose, in a way. No, not so, no, but no I think like- closure, except maybe of my own, of myself. <laughs> yeah, but at some point you made a decision to like go to Egypt. Yes. to see what you would find there. And I mean, like years later. Yep. And it, and it gathered you. I mean, in some ways it's a writing project, but like, like all writing projects are designed to, in some ways, lift out some nagging injury. I mean, they're, they're, they're quests in and of themselves, I suppose. Um, so why, why go all the way out there? Like was, was, because I think when I hear that story, like there's something really kind of romantic about it right like I think the three between the three of us we we like the stacks of a library like that does feel like there's possibility sure. and um and there's something exciting there well this there is, is it, this is last yeah. crusade right like they're in the yeah. library in Venice and the x marks the spot on the floor and that's where the adventure begins because you start in the library like that doesn't surprise me at all yeah and <laughs> that's and great. that's of course that's where it would start for I mean for for people like us right because that's that's a place where there there are sort of infinite possibilities um and uh and yet at some point you have to exit the library you have to leave venice and um you have to leave the attic and go and find whatever it is that's out there like why did you go out there and what did you find 
Yeah. I mean, I started with the text because I really did think everything that was that mattered could be found in the library. And I really spent a lot of time with that text and studying it. And eventually I, I decided to learn Greek so I could read it. I mean, it just was, was such a text oriented project. And I was convinced that the answer to whatever was compelling me was in the text. But eventually I recognized that it wasn't, it wasn't, this wasn't about books and this wasn't necessarily about language. It was about something else. And I thought I had, I had become really attracted to the idea of drawing closer to these figures, uh, through through text really but eventually but when that broke down with mary of egypt because she really isn't a text she's really a much more enigmatic figure than that uh, i decided to try to draw closer in geography if i couldn't draw closer in um in time so i that's when i started to map it out and honestly i can't say that there's a why this is one of the things i really struggled with the so what of this adventure of what it why mary of egypt i mean Part of it was because I could, because mm. once I started making that map, I was like, I got to do this. This is just way too interesting. And I have this passion for the relationship between the literal and the metaphoric. And there was just no better way to explore that than to actually go into this geography and start to explore the relationship between the, the inner and the outer, the literal and the metaphoric. And that was that's what compelled me. And Mary of Egypt herself, she really had something for me and really wanted um, a certain kind of exploration that I couldn't do by reading at the end of the day, mm -hmm. which is how I've done just about every other exploration in my life. <laughs> well, but that's, I think that's, I think that idea is very much at the heart of Goonies, right? Which is, um, there are these different moments where the the kids can turn back and they don't, they're, they're ostensibly looking for treasure, right? In order to save the goondocks. But if we just take a step back and this is what my, I think my nine or 10 year old self never did when watching this movie is that if we were to take ourselves back, we would see this doesn't make any sense. But it is absolutely and totally self-evident at least to my 10 year old mind that that's exactly what you would do. And, and I wonder, like, the, the quest idea, like, in some ways, as we grow into responsibility, um, as we have more commitments, this idea that we would go on a quest needs to justify itself in some way, when maybe that's precisely the wrong way to think about the quest. Right. You think of Mikey up there in the attic and there's that really, that's really interesting moment where he says, what if, right? What if this map were real? And that was very much my own compulsion was like, what if this woman actually lived? What would it be like to, to walk in her footsteps? And so, and, you know, everything was telling me that that was impossible, that she never lived, that this is ridiculous, that we have no idea how to follow this trajectory. And that just made it even more interesting and more compelling. And so I was very much Mikey in front of that map, asking that, I think, really critical question, what if? And in some of my research leading up to that moment, um, scholars of pilgrimage kind of point out that every, that pilgrimage always starts in the imagination. The first step is never mm. on the road. 
the first step is always in the imagination. And you could really see that unfolding in Goonies where the first step on this kind of manic uh, quest is in, in the children's imaginations, in that world that they're creating. Matt, as you were watching this movie again, like what, what theologically stood out to you that was, that was valuable for consideration? Well, I'm sitting here wondering, I'm interested to hear, Amy, you talk a little bit more about the relationship between quest and pilgrimage, because that's a question that was kind of popping up for me a little bit. And it's related, I think, to a theme that is pulling from this conversation, which is the quest, that the, the, the epiphany of imagination that Mikey has in the attic, the what if moment strikes me as a, a, a what if about personal journey. What if we went and found this thing? What if we went on this quest? Why not us? Why couldn't this be our story? But it also strikes me as being a what if question about the, the nature of the place in which they live. What if Astoria is not just this boring suburban town, but actually has like a roller coaster amusement park ride laid out underneath it, right? What if the, the world we can see is, is a shadow? I mean, there's a very kind of a metaphysical question here. And, and I don't think it's, it's not lost on me that they, they go underground and what they yep. find underground is this totally alternate space that is magical and dangerous. And they don't, they don't have to go to Venice, right? They don't have to go to Egypt. They don't have to go, uh, they don't have to do the Indiana Jones, like get on the airplane and watch the little icon go across the screen thing. Yeah. Like it's, it's a home. And, th and that feels like, like nine-year-old me, that is the most captivating part of it. Like, what if I, I don't, what if that level of magic is available to me in my own sphere? And what if right. the crucial question is not, where do I need to go to find that level of adventure? But what risks am I willing to take? Mm -hmm. What ordinary, what, what, what of the ordinary am I willing to transform? I mean, one of the beautiful things about Mary of Egypt's story is that nobody undergoes any transformation without extraordinary discomfort and without giving up the things that they, they hold most from, you know, as, as secure. Everybody in order to experience any kind of growth has to be has to go through uh, running, sweating, worrying transformation. It's it's not it's never done by sitting at home and like thinking about things. You've got to go, and so in this case, it doesn't matter. I don't think too much where the kids go, but I love this idea that they they transform their ordinary world into this this incredible place of adventure. So I will say that like like the Oregon coastline feels like one of like god's more mystical magical places so i think they've they, i think the the filmmakers stacked the deck here by picking like a place that feels a little tolkienian in the first place to to stage all of this in like when they come out of that coast at the end you're like yeah all right i buy it sure and a little bit and all but also i there were several moments in the movie where i was like oh did they make this movie so they could make a theme park and then i actually yeah. googled like goonie theme park because <laughs> I, I thought, oh, I get it now. Like the commercial aspect of it was very visible to me. And I said, oh, okay, kids are going to want to go on that water slide or they're going to want, you know, I just yeah. had this strong feeling of, I get it. They're trying to make money. They're going to turn the Oregon coastline into a theme park and have lots of tie-ins. 
But yeah, I didn't and, find anything, just in case you're wondering. And and to, oh. and to sell baby Ruth bars. Yeah, and yeah. Pepsi. And Pepsi. apparently, the the woman who owns the house, the um, the the family house, there's a real place in Astoria, um, has spent like. 20 years being relatively hospitable to the pilgrims who show up in Astoria to see the Goonies house. Oh and gosh. then in the last couple of years, in the last couple of years, like the crowds got so overwhelming that she has basically said, like, like had to put a tarp around her property to, to keep folks away or to give herself some sense of privacy. So the Goonies Whoa. house, the real life location has itself become an object of like unwanted pilgrimage which I find kind of fascinating. It's like the theme park in reverse, actually. Yeah. 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 That's fascinating. Well, but and and it's fascinating in light of the irony that like Mikey starts the movie by saying nothing exciting ever happens here. Right. Um, And which is exactly the way, like the child, the childhood ennui needs to sort of start the movie so that, as you said, Matt, like you can find the, the exciting possibilities that reside always just not deep within the surf under the underneath but like just like slightly underneath where you are. Um, And to talk about like transformation, I I think this is a really interesting thing. Like Amy, as you say, like no one, like people come out transformed, but there's some sacrifice that has to be, that has to happen. And you see that with, with different people. And I think the, the part that never really made sense to me when I was a kid, but like now makes sense in light of some of the conversations that we're having here is like, Mikey is no longer asthmatic at the end of the movie. <laughs> Did you notice this? Right. He like, just he, he just sort of he wills himself out of it. Yeah, yeah. He does not, he he is no longer frail, but is like strong. He has moved and had made this transition from like pre-adolescence into some measure of maturity or adulthood. And that happens because of his leadership that happens because it's the 80s because he kisses a woman who's older than he is he kissed a girl and he liked it and he kissed a girl and he liked it um but it's also because he has dedicated himself to some to, to some real commitment and i so i want to hear your thoughts like there is the moment like at the bottom of the wishing well this is to me and has always been the heart of the movie and this is the part of the movie that I've quoted perhaps most both in jest and in earnest uh, where it's like up there it's their time down here it's our time um and there's this there's this at the heart of that speech that Mikey makes in the wishing well is like can you choose choose your identity here are we going to be the type of people who just like um who give up or more than that like I feel like people on a quest, and this is where I'm going to turn the question to you, uh, Amy, is like, you have to reckon with most of the world doesn't care about your quest. Like, there are lots of them who will like not understand it. Yes. And so I wonder, as you've like talked about this, this, um, this desire to try and know more, this like commitment to go halfway around the world, um, the commitment to like walk into the Jordanian wilderness, like which is not just a commitment of of mind, it's a commitment of body in that point. Um, as you were on this quest, how did the perceptions of others either dissuade you or drive you in your work? 
there, yeah, there's a lot there in terms of, first of all, I mean, I chose the word quest in part because it has a little bit of humor in it. Yeah. It has a little bit of, it, it's not an entirely earnest. You, you can't really say the word and be entirely earnest. No, I feel no, like no. pilgrimage, just to get back to Matt's question about the difference between the two, pilgrimage, actually, you can almost speak earnestly. It has plenty of earnestness in it. And, and so it's this, I felt like there was this push pull between the work of the imagination, which always has a little bit of humor in it. And also Mary of Egypt has quite a bit of humor in her own story. You know, I mean, including the one we just talked about where she sells sex to pilgrims to make the journey. I mean, I feel like there is a deep joke embedded here, as well as a deep story about exploitation and about sexual violence and lots of other things. But there's also just this kind of there's just this kind of quirky nature of even using the word quest or embracing the word quest that requires a little bit of humor and a little bit of joke about oneself and one's own mm -hmm. uh, desire for adventure or whatever. But yes, I mean, you're absolutely right, Adam, that nobody cared. I mean, to get anyone to care about Mary of Egypt is a, was a real challenge <laughs> on multiple levels, including in Egypt itself, where people were just like, Mary, Mary, the mother of Jesus. Um, there, I mean, really, there just was, there was a, a kind of shrug. At, at one point, I went to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre and made this incredible discovery that there's an actual chapel of Mary of Egypt yeah. in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which I had not known for all the work and all the research that I did. Nobody ever told me. I never found this. And, and suddenly, it's, it's real. There's a chapel there, but it's closed. And the <laughs> indifference of the people that I spoke to to try to get to the chapel was was fascinating. I mean, they were just like, it's closed, it's closed. Um, or or there's this kind of hilarious like Wiley Coyote moment where people are like, oh, well, you should go talk to the cops. I think they have it. Oh, no, no, I, we don't, the cops don't have it. The Greeks have it. No, the Greeks don't have it. The, and the people were just sending me to all the, these different directions uh, because, the, well, for, frankly, they just didn't care, and they weren't particularly interested in my question or in my quest. Yeah, uh, and they really did just want to get rid of me, uh, which I understood because you know there are a lot of people asking a lot of questions in that space. Um, so I don't remember what your question was, <laughs> Adam, mm -hmm. but <laughs> those are some of the things that that occurred to me as a result. I think I mean you you answered the question. I. The, the other thing that I think has to be at least examined in this movie before we move on to, to talking about scripture is, um, is the role of community in this. Like um, the quest doesn't happen. There's not a single person on the quest, right? This is, this is actually a group of people who, who each bring some sort of like dirty dozen, like Data's the one with gadgets. And Andy knows how to play piano. Like there's Bran is like strong Spanish. Uh, Spanish. Yeah, 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 yeah. My, yeah Remarkably yeah, yeah. good Spanish for a kid at his age. Like he's, the whole thing is rude, but no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So mouth, mouth can have can speak Spanish. So everybody and Chunk is noble in his own way, right? Like and 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 shows up as the um as the one as the outsider among the outsiders, who but has a loyalty that's deeper than everybody else's, but. The community that's made in the middle of it, like Andy at one point tells Mikey, like, I'm not a goonie. 
Like that's not who I am. And yet she's caught up in this quest too. But by the end, you get the sense that they all have bonded into some version of community. And that's the final piece with with your book, Amy, is like, did were you did you build community mm. as you moved? And was it the community they expected or was it something different? I would say that I built connection uh-huh. and connection was vital. There was, n- there was no way to go about this without connection. Community seems to have a little bit of a, a longer term sort of um, commitment, yeah. commitment to it or, or a sense of building something together. And I don't think that that was the case. It was one of the mysteries of Mary of Egypt as well. It's like, what, to what extent was her, was her life completely solitary? Mm-hmm. And to what extent did she build around her a community of, of followers or, but, but it's very much the story, her story is very much a story of, of connection, of finding those connections and, and, and using those connections to build and transform. But it's not entirely clear what she built, which was one of the weird things that occurred on my journey was that this question, the question morphed from was she a real person to what did she build? What did she, what kind of Mm -hmm. legacy did she leave? And that was a a transformative question. It really changed over the course of the journey. So I felt like I found these guides along the way and my relationship with those guides became very deep and very meaningful for me. And I also had pretty amazing traveling companions who helped me to make sense of things, who kept my spirits up, who laughed with me when everything went wrong, who provided moments of inspiration, you know, so, so the, in that sense, there was a kind of community that was building, but it was more of a community of the moment than it was a kind of lasting set of connections. Mm -hmm. Although I still maintain all the relationships with my guides, with the people that I connected with, Um, those relationships are really important. And there was a kind of sponsoring community here at home of people who were deeply interested in the in the questions that I was pursuing and who really wanted me to pursue them. And so we're providing me with all kinds of resources to feed the quest as it were. So it's kind of a, I mean, in some ways it was a very, very lonely quest. I mean, I showed up in Jerusalem at the Tantor Ecumenical Institute and there wasn't a person there who was like, oh my gosh, this is so cool. How can we help you? It was more like, huh? Yeah, people come here for all kinds of weird reasons. Moving on. You know, that was basically how, (laughs) that's basically how it went. Um, And they were bringing me, you know, they'd bring me things they thought were relevant to the quest, which was really sweet and really kind, but it would, and it would take me some time to realize, no, this has nothing to do with Mary of Egypt and it's really not that helpful. So um, yeah, that was, it was a real mix of, of momentary community building and momentary communities collapsing. And I mean, and that, that the, the, um, the vision of community that appears at the end of the film with the, you know, all the town and the characters gathered on the beach celebrating the victory over the nasty land grubbers and seeing the the sort of magical mystery of the ship heading out into the water i mean that that all is predicated on the fact that these kids actually found their treasure at the end right i mean they they they, they found their literal economic treasure like that's that's what's allowing that to happen um (laughs) i keep hearing indiana jones in the back of my head too matt where it's like it belongs in a museum yeah, well, so do you we. Know, but you yeah. can't use those gems to buy your house. 
<laughs> I'm just thinking so, like that community is um is contingent, right? I mean, yeah. it's it's it, it's it's not like it, it feels like the the renewed or restored relationships in that film are a little purchased. Um, and mm. if and if you don't find if we don't find Slick Willie or if all the treasure goes sinks to the bottom or sails out to sea and we still have to um, foreclose the house like it doesn't feel to me like those relationships are going to survive that in the same way that we see at the end of the movie. Um, and so I, I think it's I, I don't want to give the movie credit for kind of questing builds community in this beautifully simple yeah. way without allowing it to be a little bit complicated can we before we run out of time can we talk about sloth i, I yeah um I, I feel like this is a character that needs a, a little bit of attention for this film just because i feel um deeply conflicted about this portrayal and in this character as a whole and it 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 profoundly felt like a character that would not exist in 2021 in a version of this film. Um, and this is um, the the son of one of the criminals that are chasing them through the movie. We haven't even talked about them. Who is <laughs> who is severely disabled? Who they have in fact are keeping chained in the basement at the beginning of this movie. Um, he eventually bonds with Chunk. They are, I guess, supposed to be the two sort of outsiders in their own respective communities and families who then are able yeah. to connect using a baby Ruth bar. So there's a good bit of 80s candy um, branding that shows up. And then uh, Sloth kind of becomes the, the disabled superhero figure that... Um, that saves them, um, that saves everybody at the end through his acts of, of pure strength. Um, I, I struggled a bit with this. It felt like Sloth gets to be freed from the confines of his family, but he doesn't get to be freed from the confines of the story. Like he still has to be, he still has to be Superman for yep. the, the, the movie to work. And that, I wrestled with that substantially and I, I we're sort of off the line of questing here, but I don't want to wrap up before we touch on what feels like a fairly substantial bit of interpretive need for the movie. How did you all see sloth in 2021? I mean, I was, I was just baffled. I, I really couldn't actually make sense of sloth. And this might be the fact that I, I haven't seen a lot of superhero movies. So I don't, I didn't have, I, I just, I just, was I was confused I but I but I hear what you're saying Matt where he, there's a way that he he has to in order to prove his value to the community and his value mm -hmm. to the group he has to save them otherwise he he could be discarded along with all the other um you know along with all the other bad guys so I think he yeah I, I mean I, I I was mystified by him yeah, I mean, as a as a piece of representation, it, it is it's not only baffling. It it's um, it it treads offensive portrayals for for sure. And I think that you know, in 1985, when this movie came out, um, there were still people who were fighting for appropriate representation of those with um, physical and um, 
and differing physical and mental capabilities. And so I, I think Sloth ought not get a pass from the filmmakers here by any stretch of the imagination. I think to your point, Matt, like as a, as a piece of plot, he is designed to, um, to free the Goonies, right? Like, I mean, um, that said, he, there, I find, I still find the relationship between him and Chunk tender in a, in a way that like, that maybe is not warranted, but still speaks to my heart as, as someone who, I don't know, just, recognizes that in families and in communities, people do get marginalized and they do, they are the butt of everyone's joke and they don't get the type of attention and care and love that they deserve. And they act out in all sorts of ways in Chunk's way. Like, I mean, his confessions that he makes to the Fratellis still just kills me. Yeah. You know, like, you know, Okay. I, you know, the worst thing I ever did is I bought some big puke and I threw it over and started making this sound. It, he's, um, and yeah, that, that bond, like, I don't know, it still feels, it still feels real to me as like a, two people who found some measure of love and the way that they care for each other as, um, as loving companions um, over and against what Sloth has to do for everybody else. I, I think at least for me, gives me pause enough to not just discard the, the character as a sort of a gross 1985 portrayal of, of disability. Well, and it's a response. He, he doesn't, um, Chunk doesn't run away screaming like everybody else. I mean, in some ways he's forced to sit down behind beside something that is terrifying to him but he does he sits and he learns and he's changed and they're both of them are changed by that relationship so so before that up until that point everybody just observes something yeah. yeah there's a monster and they run away screaming and so there's so there is something about that sitting down and um, becoming connected that that has some power yeah over food i mean and yeah. It's played for laughs, but I'm like, yeah, yeah. how else do you become connected? <laughs> like, like this makes perfect sense to me, right? Like they both they both love food. And um and it's a candy bar, but like they're you you build relationship around a, a table and at least in that instance that's what happens there. Yeah, I mean I that that sequence more or less works for me. I mean my my cynical eye sees it so sees so much et in it that it's hard for me to take it you know as a as a as an original thought it's you know we've got the sort of the alien other character bonding with a kid using a brand recognized <laughs> candy candy of some kind um it's i think it's i think it's the the way that sloth becomes um instrumentalized later he doesn't really get to be no. you know he he's recognized at the table and the breaking of bread but he, he's not allowed to be a, a a fully developed character after that he's he's basically um a tool for yeah. sa Definitely. saving everybody else um instead of getting to be a, a sort of instead of getting to be a full person and that 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 just rankles me a bit but 
Yeah, and that's that. I couldn't agree more. I mean, that's like he never gets to live into the full dignity of his own humanity here. Um, that said, I think there, there, that moment with Chunk at least signals that there's hopefully one who is willing to sit with him to do it if the filmmakers are unwilling. I think let's move on to scripture and talk a little bit more about these questions. But before we do, we want to talk about the ways in which we're grateful for our partnership with Christian Century and want to guide your attention to the good work that they're doing. The Century has launched another new podcast called Ma Dang, and it is hosted by Grace uh, Jisoon Kim, who interviews different people about culture and theology. And um, she's already in, uh, had some amazing interviews, and we want to be able to direct your attention to the good work that she's doing right now. If you are listening and don't yet subscribe to the Century, Sunday morning matinee listeners can get a free mat trial magazine subscription. For more information, you can visit christiancentry.org slash podcast offer. So Adam and Amy, let's talk about preaching a little bit. The text for this upcoming lectionary are from year B, which is October 31st. Some folks may be doing Reformation Sunday this day. Some folks may be doing All Saints. It's a little tricky when you have the Sunday right at the very end of October. We have a text from the beginning of Ruth, which is an amazingly rich and familiar text. We have the Shema in Deuteronomy, Hero Israel, the Lord your God is one. We have Hebrews 9 and Christ's comparison to the function of the high priest. And finally, the gospel passage from Mark, where Jesus explains the two greatest commandments. So Adam or Amy, either one, as you look at these texts and think about Goonies, is there some connection? Is there something that jumps into your theological imaginations? Yeah, I mean, so I always I'll start with Ruth just because I'm I'm always taken by Ruth and um, and how rich a text it is. And there are a couple of things that I think are, are worth pointing out. Um, Goonies takes place in the backdrop of this apparently kind of strange way in which real estate deals are happening, and they're displacing people and. The, the ways in which the, the powerful Troy's father, for instance, are negotiating with people who have less power in order to like buy their homes. And um, it, it's a little vague, but it's not unlike the sort of vagueness that begins Ruth in this first chapter where um, Ruth begins with um, a sort of contextual setting of in the time of the judges. Uh, my friend Greg, teaches Old Testament, um, translated judges generally as warlords. And so his translation is in the time of the warlords. And that's the way you're going to talk about this, um, the, this book of Ruth. And what's interesting about the book of Ruth in that, uh, in that setting is that you have all of these stories about these important battles and these um, violent acts that are designed to deliver Israel. And then you get a very local and very personal and tender story about um, some small decisions that people make that have really big effects. And I think that there's something true about that in Goonies, right? Like you have these people who are, they're kids, they're, they're, they're not considered important. Um, no one has allowed them to be part of the negotiations for the purchasing of the Goondocks. And yet they have, um, they have desires, they wanna stay, they wanna save things. And, Ruth is ultimately about the ways in which um, Ruth, this Moabite woman, 
is able to um, lay the groundwork for um, for Israel's eventual salvation through the Davidic kingdom. And um, that's the surprise at the end of Ruth is that you get the little genealogy that tells you that Ruth was David's grandmother and um, or great grandmother um, and that it was her small acts of faithfulness that ultimately were the things that were going to deliver Israel from this brutal time of the judges. And so I, I like that idea. And that, that sort of speaks to me. What about you all? Amy, is there anything that stands out to you? The thing I found myself reflecting on was failure. And if you, I mean, when you unpack the Goonies at any level, you don't see the kids making great choices they they're not particularly successful they don't they don't really succeed in anything beyond perseverance and even that is kind of questionable because they're just (laughs) they're just being drawn deeper and deeper into this world and it's being done against their will it's being done uh they make maybe a few a few choices to go in a few choices to embark on the journey, a few willing, a few moments of willingness. And beyond that, it's, it's totally out of their control. And it's just, it's, it's just insanity. And I thought they're being driven by the Fratellis too, right? They're being driven, right? They're not, they're not even, they're not making coherent, conscious, beautiful choices along the way. They're just being thrown into the chaos and, and off they go. And so I did think about that as, as, as endemic to this, the spiritual life and also the attempts to follow these commandments so I found myself reflecting on those commandments and on what it means to love the Lord, your God, with all your heart, mind, and soul, and also um, to love your neighbor as yourself. And what I've been reading lately, whenever I have, to, whenever I pick up the New Testament is the First Nations version, hmm. which is a translation by a group of indigenous scholars that taking the, taking the New Testament and, and interpreting in terms of um in terms that make sense inside of indigenous cultures in the U.S. And when I, when I was looking at that in terms of the, uh, this passage from Mark, it's pretty interesting. One of the things that they do in the indigenous version is rename a lot of things so that instead of Jesus, you have creator sets free. And then hmm. instead of, for example, Mark, Mark is called war club in this translation. Hmm. They go really, and I don't know, I haven't really dug into that yet. So, but one of the things that it struck me in terms of these, what this translation calls the greatest instructions is that when they, they translate the part about your whole, your, your uh, love, the Lord, your God with your heart, soul, and mind. Now I'm getting it wrong, but Mm -hmm. here in this translation, it's, you must love the great spirit with your whole being, with the strength of your arms the thoughts of your mind and the courage of your heart. The Mm -hmm. second instruction is like the first. You must love your fellow human beings in the same way you love yourselves. There is no greater instruction than these. And so I loved, I love hearing it in just slightly different, different terms because it's, it wakes me up in, in a certain way. And I found that uh, thinking about that. And then of course, having never thought about these passages in light of the Goonies, I was struck by, uh, there's not a whole lot we can do, but just consent to the journey and then see what unfolds. That's beautiful. Yeah, yeah it is. I'm gonna check out that translation. It is really cool. 
I'm thinking about, I mean, and it's because I, I am no longer like the nine-year-old stealing HBO to watch this movie. I'm now the, <laughs> the parent of the 10-year-old who um, could, I suppose, turn on HBO Max to watch this movie. Um, so I'm reading this Deuteronomy text from a parent's perspective and watching this movie from a parent's perspective a little bit. And, and the, the Shema just feels so um, embedded with pedagogy. It's a, it's a pedagogical instruction, right? There's the promise, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. And then it's, an, it's a series of pedagogical instructions. Keep these words, recite them to your children, um, bind them as a sign on your hand, write them on the doorposts of your house. Like there's a curriculum here for how we remember this. And it strikes me that no parent in this movie teaches these kids anything. <laughs> like th th these kids learn and grow and change over the course of the film, but they, they don't do it in any way that we would recognize as being from the pedagogy of an adult. It is, it is entirely because of they sort of learn from each other or from the experience they have in the world around them, um, which is not to say that they haven't like gone to school at some point and learned something, but what we see on screen feels in that sort of classic 80s way. I mean, as, as I described this as part of a genre of movies about kids going on unsupervised adventures, like it, it feels like a part of a, a larger cultural rejection of the idea that adults or grown-ups would have anything useful or, or, or be able to teach effectively. And that where these kids are really going to learn is with each other and on their own. Yeah, um, all, and, the, all the adults are like terrible in this movie and or bumbling idiots. Like Mikey's right, mom. Like, mom just doesn't even realize that he's tied up and thinks that he's like fell over exercising. And like, it's just that, so, and I just... I don't know where to go with that, but I do think it it pushes something and how we think about pedagogy and our own Christian formation mm -hmm. and how churches think about what what is what is the import, what is the value? Surely there is something here to reciting these words to our kids, binding them as a sign on our hand. I mean, there's something that is valuable and important that is fighting against this sort of underlying proclamation that actually all these kids really need to do is get out into the world on their own and learn it for themselves. Um, and I, 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 I'm sort of stuck in between those things um, and watching this film and reading this text. Yeah, I mean, like, it seems like one of the lessons of, of this movie, Matt, is that if you would like to grow up and mature into an adult, all you need to do is be followed by a homicidal family that seeks to kill you at every turn. Right. And then you will know the true ways to be an adult, right? right? When in actuality, you're like, oh, can we just, let's bring it down a notch. Right. Like, can, can someone have a, like a thoughtful conversation about the ways in which like displacement happens. Right. And the injustice that happens in the midst of this. Right. I mean, what, what Sloth needs is to be divorced from his parents, right? Like this, which is the most extreme example, but like even, you know, even Data is like a better inventor than his dad is. And they have this beautiful hug at the end of the movie, but dad has not successfully taught his kid how to do anything. Data is clearly 
teaching his dad backwards instead. Um, so there's 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 no there's there's, there's no faith here in um in, in parental guidance. Uh, and you know I get it. Um, and that it feels as a 10 year old feels just incredibly empowering and, and, and like the, the horizon of the world in that universe is so vast. Um, but I think Deuteronomy is pulling me somewhere else too at the same time. Yeah. It has a bigger vision for the responsibilities of everybody. Right. Like, I mean, there's a, there's a baptismal vision here that, um, that we call on people to, to be not only stewards of this, this tradition or this word, but also teachers of it. Um, that I, I think like that, that image of like writing it on your hand is, is a really potent one, especially given how much violence happens in this movie from adults towards children. You know, like, like if, like if, if the name of God is on your hand and you're gripping a gun, like in what way have you occluded the name of God in such a like horrifying and inhumane way? Or I mean, or if you're going to hit your child similarly, like there's something like there's there's a larger metaphor and a powerful one, not just in with respect to hands, but doorways to be mined here that are not being um that the adults in the movie are falling down on the job to do. Like they're they're not apprenticing the young people into the world in front of them. And the adventure gets to do it for them, which is like you said, every 10 year old stream. Um, and of course the, the irony there being that this movie becomes a sort of parent figure itself for me. A gener- <laughs> for you, right? For a generation of kids who are sitting at home stealing HBO to watch it. Um, yeah. So <laughs> this, this is, is me part watching of my, it by my, my, my long slash maybe not that long journey towards being an old crank but here we are um yeah uh-huh yeah maybe i shouldn't have learned these lessons from the goonies <laughs> <laughs> but you know what in some ways like there weren't there weren't very many other people to teach me so I'll take it where i can get it <laughs> richard donner christopher columbus and steven spielberg <laughs> Where my Thank, parents. Thanks, dads. <laughs> Amy, thank you so much for being with us and talking about this movie and talking about your own amazing quest. Uh, thanks for sharing your story a bit. And we will look forward to having you back sometime. All right. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, go buy Amy's book. It's really good. I really enjoyed it. All right, Matt. Now it's time for our last segment. This is called Postludes. It's a chance to get another little preacher thought from each of us on something else that we're watching or following. Matt, what's your postlude for the week? Well, it's been a while since we did this, Adam. So I know. I've, I've consumed a lot of culture. So some, some, some weeks we do this show and I'm like, I, what have I watched or seen or read since the last time we were doing it? I'm like sort of right. like scratching a little bit. But this is like, oh man, there's been a lot. Um, a whole mm-hmm. summer's worth of stuff. Uh, and so I, I had to dig through. But the the thing that really comes to the top of mind, and I this is a, a recommendation to preachers first and foremost, on the 10th of September, 
on the eve of the 20th anniversary of 9-11, Apple TV Plus, which you subscribe to if you're a Ted Lasso fan at all, um, dropped uh, a Broadway pro shot, um, which is like a, a good filmed Broadway production version of the show Come From Away, which is a musical mm-hmm. that debuted five years ago or so based on the real life story of the town of Gander, Canada, which on the morning of September 11th, 2001, Gander Canada is on the eastern seaboard coast of Canada, and it has, for old reasons, uh, a a very oversized airport for the size of its town. It was, I believe, used as a refueling stop uh, when transatlantic flights could not make it all the way from, say, New York to London without a little bit of help. So it's a small town with a giant airport. And after 9-11, when the... um, when the U.S. government closed air travel to foreign flights, flights were immediately rerouted. Most of them were rerouted to Gander, Canada, or at least many of them coming in from London and Paris and points European landed there simultaneously. So this little tiny town is all of a sudden playing host to the thousands of people that are on some dozens of of transatlantic jumbo jets. This is an amazing story about the sort of convening paths of trauma mm-hmm. where we have people on flights that are just desperate to find out whether their family members in New York and DC are okay and are alive and vice versa. And also hospitality as we watch this town open itself and resource itself to feed and host thousands of people on the drop of a dime. It is transformed into stage show in ways that are really amazing. It is a small and intimate cast. It is, this is not Spider-Man turn off the dark. This is not big and <laughs> elaborate and neon. It's, it's, it's a small ensemble production, which I think may actually even work better in pro shot than it would in the theater because you get the intimacy of camera angle on faces um, and you don't have to worry about, you're not trying to capture the sort of roller coaster of a whole stage doing a big thing because that's not really what the show is. It's an amazing production. Um, My family gathered around and watched it and I cannot imagine a more appropriate, challenging, grief-filled and joy-filled and beautiful way of thinking through and feeling our way through that anniversary. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I highly, highly recommend it. It seems both a perfect distillation of that moment and also incredibly trenchant for this one as it works through the reality of doing of, of having communion in the midst of brokenness uh, and in the midst of grief. And I loved it with my whole heart. So I, I, I recommend that to anyone and everyone in, in the context of a larger plea to producers everywhere who will obviously all listen to this show regularly. <laughs> we need more cinematic pro shots of Broadway musicals. Uh, yeah. They are such a delight mm-hmm. and please do them all the time. Thank you.
Uh, yeah, let me co-sign that. I have very real memories of being 13 and watching the Into the Woods pro shot from way back when. Do you are you right? The, 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 the Bernadette the, show. The right? Bernadette the Bernadette yeah. show. Yeah, that's the one. Um, yeah. And the fact that they're doing more of those is like scratches a real itch, at least in my life. Um, yeah. And I, if my recollection serves, Matt, like the, that theater in Broadway is, is particularly small too. So it's a pretty intimate show. Um, and it's it's great to see that this is this is an opportunity. I saw that that came out, but I, I haven't had a chance to, to watch it yet. Yeah, and it's all of an hour and 40. Like it is not yeah. a long show. It's one no, act. No. Um, it's it's so digestible and beautiful simultaneously. So my highest recommendation. What about you, Adam? What are you chewing on? So uh, like you, I had a lot to think about. Um, I think the thing that uh, maybe most finds the intersection of the audience of this podcast is I've been listening to the um, the what has become in my house known as the Mars Hill podcast. Are you familiar uh, yeah. with? The podcast I, that people have been talking about. Yeah, I have not listened because I just kind of don't need that energy. But no, I'm no, aware. No, I'm very aware of it. Yeah. So I, I have to. I have to listen in bits and pieces just because it gets. It gets very. It's it's hard to listen to from a standpoint of someone in ministry yeah. who's watching other people make really bad ministry decisions. Um, and so it is a. It's a hard listen, but. If, if you aren't familiar, the Christianity Today has put together quite a well-produced podcast about um, the Mars Hill Church, which is a Seattle emergent church, even new evangelical turn-of-the-century megachurch led by a pastor named Mark Driscoll, that, um, that among the sort of cultural Christianity sort of saw itself as an outsider kind of punk rock, but with respect to its theology was in the wider world is quite conservative in its understanding, especially when it comes around gender dynamics. Um, and it very famously in 2014 sort of blew up um, because of the, the failure of leadership um, at Mark from Mark Driscoll, but among other things. And the, I, I commend it to people to listen to, because I think it's really well done. It's, very weird to get long form reporting and a podcast form around things of church. Yeah. Especially those things that have like theological thinking and in, intact inside them. And for that, I, I was deeply appreciative if only because I felt like, Oh yeah. Like I speak this language. This is something that um, is very personal to me um, in a way that like a maybe true crime podcast or personal to police officers or homicide detectives or something. Um, and it does hold some real lessons. The thing uh, for, for leadership, for churches, um, both your, your sort of evangelical churches, but also your, your, your mainline Protestant churches at large. And then there feels something voyeuristic about this, Matt, where I'm gleefully watching the downfall of another church community. And it's not gleeful, but it is nice to see someone whose theology I don't agree with and whose leadership ideas find I find abhorrent um, to see their particular success find um, uh, be reduced 
and there's a tremendous fallout that happens with a lot of different people. Um, but I, I'm 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 an outsider watching this happen and watching the postmortem happen, and it doesn't make me feel very comfortable. It doesn't feel like it honors all of the people who were hurt necessarily. But moreover, like I remember being a part of different churches in that period of time in the church's history when Mars Hill was rising to its its um, its strength and its size. And Mark Driscoll, Rob Bell, these other names were really, um, they drove traffic and they drove people's imaginations and people loved to argue about them. And there was a part of me, I think, this side of that, this side of that era, where I was glad that we were talking about that stuff less. Yeah. And yet here we are talking about it again. And I wonder if the fact that we are regathering these figures to our attention is in some ways repeating some of the problems that led to the rise and fall of Mars Hill Church to begin with. Yeah, I would I think part of why I've been hesitant to listen is that I'm I'm worried about my own Schadenfreude. Yeah, yeah, totally. That's it. Right. Like I just I, I said I don't need that energy. And I think that's part of the energy I don't need because I don't trust myself not to feel an, an amount of like um, pleasure in something that is not that should not really be pleasurable like this is no, a story that has I, this is a story that has real victims and causes hurt for a lot of people and i i, I want those stories to be and, and those people to be our first priority and mm -hmm. you know you and i have both come out of such a long season of kind of dumb internecine battles between mainliners and evangelicals and the sort of ideas about celebrity pastordom and celebrity churches. And um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of tired of all of that, but I also mm -hmm. know that the blood of it still runs in my veins. Right. Yeah. And so it's part of why I think this, I just kind of want to let this one pass but I'm glad you've listened to it. So now we can reflect about it. Yeah, no, I think I, but I think that's right. I think I would commend it to people if they feel like they have the space to entertain some, some complexities there. And th those complexities are not just academic, right? They're very emotional. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and um, especially as people in, in church leadership, um, those, there, there are things to be learned. There are, but I, but then again, like the utilitarian maybe is not the best way to frame this either, right? Like, like, hey, I'm going to listen to what is a very traumatic event in many people's lives as a way for me to figure out how to be a better pastor. Right, it's not Con Ed. <sighs> yeah, like, is that really what I want to do? Like, maybe, I mean, learning from failures is important, but at some point, like other people's failures are theirs. And, um, and it's not my job to mine that for gold necessarily. And maybe it's not even good for me to do so. So it, there, there's a lot there and there's a lot to consider. And, and I actually think Catherine Reckless in the century just wrote about this in particular. Um, and I would commend everyone to go and check it out and see what she has to say as well. well.
Well, thank you for listening to that. I now feel even more like I don't need to, so I, I can just ask you follow-up <laughs> questions instead. But that about wraps it up for this episode. Adam, it's good to be back with you. If you all like the show, be sure to leave a rating on iTunes or come to the show page and tell us how we got it all wrong. We'd love to hear your feedback. Drop us a line on Facebook or Twitter or at the show page at sundaymorningmatinee.com. Special thanks, of course, to our friends at the Christian Century and to the fine editing skills of Derek Weston. Our music today was composed by Bobby Brinkerhoff. Big thanks to him and his band, Mikey's Inhaler. Thanks, Adam. Thanks, Matt.